0: Buckle up. Welcome to Musicians and Beyond special multi-part series under the covers with Ernie Sheffaloo. Your hosts John Sarabian and Mark Lawhorn are going to expose the history-making journey of this iconic figure and his contributions to the music and corporate world. All right, so this is Musicians and Beyond, and we are here once again with the world-famous and oh. iconic Ernie Sheffaloo. Ernie, did you know you were world-famous?
1: I did not, John. Not till just now, man. And Thank you for that.
0: Well, I, the I, stuff I, that you've I, done in the past, man, has made you world famous. That stuff has been around and yeah. has touched so many lives. And, you know, you're part of not only uh, music history, but also in the uh, corporate world.
1: Yeah. You know, it's really funny, John, because I never really... When we were doing all this work as Pacific Islander and even when I was doing the work before as an individual, I never really stopped to think, okay, someday this is really going to be something. Someday this is going to be iconic or someday this is going to touch millions of people's lives. I never really realized that and never really thought about it. And then when the internet came along, well, let's put it this way, the internet came along long before I got on the internet. But when I got hip to the the internet and and got a Facebook page, you know, people started, you know, telling me about how these pieces that I had done stood out in their lives or changed their lives. And it's really basically the Jesus Christ Superstar logo because so many people were moved by that and by that album. And then the Rolling Stones, these two, and then there's Alice Cooper and there's all these other groups too, but the Bee Gees. But these two seem to resonate with the majority of everybody. You know, I mean, and, and like I said, it really started, I started getting feedback on my Facebook page about the Jesus Christ Superstar thing. And I thought, well, you know, let's put some of the other stuff out there. Let me put some of the, because nobody knew who I was. I mean, I, I, I really didn't, you know, at Pacific Ioneer, we did 189 album covers. You won't find my name on one of them. It was always br- about the, the company, ab- yeah. about the brand, Pacific Ioneer, the brand, and promoting that over the individual. Except when it came to the illustrators and photographers and people that I work with, they always got credit. But when the credit came out for concept design and stuff like that, it was always Pacific Ionier. Yeah. I mean, even early on, you know, I realized that the brand was important, you know. So yeah.
0: are you saying that, you know, you've done all this stuff in the past and you're probably more well known now than when you were in your heyday because okay. now all of these stories are coming out people like us and and your friend Joyce with that Ernie's Corner she does a fantastic job well you, you guys know, do a
1: great job as well and she oh, thank you. said to make sure that I compliment you on it you oh, know thank I mean? you thank you you know someday maybe we'll all do something together who knows that you know? would be
0: wonderful <laughs> but but your story's getting out there and a lot of these people that are listening to us and seeing it you know they don't know yeah. how this all came to fruition
1: Right. Well, you know, and that's important for me too, John. I touched on something very personal there. Um, you know, we're only here for a short time and I think all of us want to be able to be remembered. All of us want to be able to say like during the second world war, Kilroy was here, you know, and everybody knew what that meant. And, and it was important. And I want to be more than just a headstone in a graveyard. Yep. You know, I want to be able to do stuff that lives on long after I do and and I, and I guess I really never really thought about it that way until later in my career when, when I started getting feedback. I realized that, hey, man, you know, I mean, we knew that we, we were doing an album for Alice or we were doing an album for this one or that one. That there was fans out there that were, you know, picking up on the stuff that we were doing. And, you know, but there was never any mass communication until the Internet came along. And all of a sudden, everybody's talking to everybody. They got all these fans that are Rolling Stones fans and Alice Cooper and Jesus Christ Cooper. And they all have and and they have this commonality of music. And it seemed to be even though, you know, by the time the Internet came along and I got on it, I had well established myself in the corporate world, like you said, yeah. you know, by really not in the mid 80s. The record business for Pacific Eye really sort of faded because it faded for everybody. And there were only a handful. When we started out in 1972, there were three companies. That was it. Hypnosis, us, and another company in LA. Braun was one, but they went out of business really fast. Camouflage. There was just a handful at the most. And by the time it started fading out in the 80s, there were a bunch of them. And there were A lot of kids coming out of art school and stuff wanting to design album covers because that was the cool thing to do. You got a chance to do crazy stuff and be free and, you know, mingle with the rock bands and stuff. So it became a real thing to do. And kids were coming out of art school with projects that were designing an album cover. So it became very competitive for us. And the price that record companies were willing to pay, by that time, the record companies have already taken back control from the groups. OK, especially the newer groups, they no longer had a right to say, you know, who was going to design it, where it was going to be produced, who was going to be the producer, you know. And so they, they stayed away from that a lot. You know, so I was just telling John that, you know, the Internet before the before the Internet. I mean, I never realized how many people's lives I had touched with the stuff that we did, you know, we, oh, sure. and the company itself, not just me. Uh, even though I co-authored everything that that company ever did and that I've done in my career, uh, you know it was still a group effort. You know if it was not if it wasn't the guys at Pacific engineer it was Tony and I at, at Craig Braun, or it was me and Jim at, at Norman Levitt when we did Superstar. So you know there was always and it was like a rock band, John. To answer your question, you know I people start out with groups and then that group goes away and they go to a different group and they move on. And and you get amazed at how many bands that that particular artist had played with, you know, until they found the right combination. And for me, it was never really that obvious until I started Pacific Eye here and the, and the members of that art department were like the Rolling Stones. I mean, we were tight. And in so, and I was telling John in 1971, I designed the Stone's Tongue and all the other pieces. And even before that, in 1969, the, the first use of the Rolling Stone's Tongue with this label for Dolls Alive and how it evolved from that to, you know, in between that and the Rolling Stone's Tongue was the Jesus Christ Superstar album that got me a chance to go where I did the Rolling Stone's Tongue. So it all kind of piggybacked to where, even to where I am today. And in 19, so in 1972, we started Pacific Ironer, and I put together a, an eclectic group of artists uh, on staff there at Pacific Ironer in our art department. And by 1974, we were really cooking. I mean, we had some major albums that we had done. I mean, people were starting to hear our name. There wasn't that much competition. There were a handful at the most, a handful globally, that were doing what we were doing. And because it was becoming an art form, it never really was before. The record companies always handled it, you know, and and they were really conservative. And their idea of a perfect album cover is a picture of the group. And in the top part of the album, the name of the group and the name of the album. That was the so that when it was in the record bins and record stores, that's the first thing you would see the name at the top. So, you know, really sort of pushing the envelope on things. We sort of got away and broke the mold on that. And, you know, and and sort of changed a lot of things in album, cover, art, design. We were very disruptive. Everything that we did really pushed the limit and really pushed it further and further. And by 1974, like I said, we had done Black Sabbath. We had done some major albums for Alice Cooper, the top bands we were doing work for. And our name was around. And I wanted to, at a certain point, I wanted to make sure that this group of artists, never really forgot the value that they brought individually, because it's important. You know, it's one thing to become part of a group, but it's also important for that individual to realize the power and the value that they're bringing to that group. And so and it started weighing heavy on me. You know, I mean, everybody was kind of really dependent on the group and and I was the one that was, I was like the coach. I would call the plays. I would assign the, the, the different people that are on the field and to each project. And whether it was album cover or a corporate piece, because in 74, we never really stopped doing corporate, but the record business really took 90% of our time. 10% was, uh, you know, was involved in doing corporate work. But as the years went on, we got equally as popular in the corporate world, especially through low-hanging fruit like Altec Lansing and JBL and, you know, all these different, uh, you know, companies that were making musical equipment, you know, uh, and guitars, instruments, all that stuff we were playing around with, Anvil Cases. Um, And so I wanted to make sure that we didn't forget about us as individuals and the value that we brought. And and so what I did was I created this intercompany project. Right. So got all these pieces, things that I had as we went into uh, Pacific Pioneer. um, Those things became less important and, you know, we started functioning more as a group. So there what we have is, you know, the 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 line art, the mechanical and the uh, sketches for that logo. Uh, and then is the piece that you see next to me here. What what I did was I created this inner company, inner art department project. And the project was to only be with the art department. It wasn't really a job that was billable. It was a project that I created to help us, you know, realize the value that we each brought. So what I did was I set this project in motion by saying, look, each one of us, and there I think there were five or six of us at that time, uh, I want you to do something that's out of your comfort zone. Okay. Drew was an incredible illustrator with colored pencils. Okay. He w- and he started using airbrush. You know, Carl Ramsey was a major airbrush artist. Joe, Joe Garnett was an oil painter. You know, Bill Garland was a cartoonist. You know, I was a graphic designer. So what I did was I said, okay, let's, um, each one of us without sharing it to the others, Go away. with we'll get it set up a timeline of like a week. Go away and do something that's out of your comfort zone with found things. You can't go to the store and buy it. You got to sort of, you know, find what you're going to do and and do it. And then we'll come back in a week and we'll present. Each one of us will present to the group and build that individuality. OK, but, but take us out of our comfort zone. I was very comfortable with working with compasses and ruling pens and stuff like that, doing black and white line art like this, you know, and very tight. And and so that was the project. Uh, and everybody went away. And a week later, we all came back together. What I did was, uh, well, Drew did a sculpture. He had never really done a sculpture. So he did a wood sculpture. And it's so funny because about... A month or two later, we got the Kenny Rank and Silver Morning album to do, and Drew got the assignment, and he did a wood carving sculpture and painted it and put colored pencil on it. It's a beautiful cover, but it was a wood sculpture that he glued pieces of wood together and then carved into it and painted on it. Joe Garnett did a cartoon. He was an oil painter, so he did an animation, like a cartoon strip. You know, Bill Garland, who was a cartoonist, did a watercolor. Carl Ramsey, who was an airbrush illustrator, did a landscape, which later on in his career became very well known for landscapes and cityscapes and stuff as a painter, hung up the airbrush and became a painter. I decided that I was going to do a painting because I had only done two before. One was a big six foot artichoke. The other one was a six foot feather. And those were school projects that I had done. And I never really picked up a paintbrush and did anything like that again. So I decided I was going to do a painting I was very uncomfortable with that so that was really even more reason why I wanted to do it I had a painter's drop cloth a canvas one that I was you know I would paint apartments I mean because I had a fourplex and I would do the maintenance the painting the, all the cosmetics on the fourplex for years and and I um I had this painter's drop cloth that I cut up I cut a piece of it out when you look at the canvas that this tongue logos painted on there's all kinds of paint stains and stuff that I spilled you know so I cut a section out of that I got some wood made some stretcher bars and I stretched this canvas and I did this painting of the Rolling Stone stuff so that there, Ernie, is
0: the original painting right there
1: yeah there's only one painting they're just like there's only one uh, like you see in that picture of me I'm holding the line art okay there's only one of those and that was done in 1971 Uh, below that is the sketches there's only one of those Next to that is the mechanical with the ruby lith overlay that went to the mechan- to the printer to separate the black and, and put the red in place. Because you couldn't do it as one piece. Like the painting that I did is one, one image. If I'd sent that out to be separated, the black would never be black. It would be a dark gray because they have to separate things into dots to print them. There's yellow, blue, you know, red and, and uh, black those four colors and so everything is a dot. By doing it as a piece of line art with a ruby lith overlay, you can keep the black at a hundred percent and you put the red together at a hundred percent. That's why it was when you look at that logo, it really punches because that's how it was created. So I sort of decided that I was going to do this painting of the and I you know I don't I don't paint figures. I mean I did sketches but not as good as Drew and Bill and the rest of the guys. And I my sketches didn't need to be better because You know, it was just inspiration for them to take it and go to the next level with it. So I never really I mean, I could do sketches, but nowhere near as good as Bill and the other guys. So, you know, so I did this painting and a week later, we all came together and we shared, you know, each one got up and made a presentation to the others in the art department. And in doing that, it didn't separate us more. It brought us more together because we respected each other more for the piece that we did that showed the value that we could bring, you know, and each one of us, uh, did a great job. I mean, we really did. And I, and so I had this painting and one of the reasons why we're talking about this today is never really talked about this before. It was on a couple of weeks ago, it was on Ernie's corner, but we talked about it briefly, but, you know, I wanted to go into more detail with you guys and, and, uh, you know she's selling commercial they we're on a couple stations that sell com, uh, sell commercial time. Uh, there's an oldies channel and a, and a couple others. So so that version is really kind of cut from 30 minutes to cut in half. So it really didn't get a chance to, unless you go onto Facebook and see it later. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But I wanted to share it with you guys because you've done such a great job, you know, in the past and we work really well together with Under the Covers and, you know, I'm really excited about that and I share it with people um, as do you. And so, you know, I, I did this painting and when I would when the company was doing artwork and stuff, I would get it back from the separator and I would put it away. So I had all this artwork. I mean, to this day, I have thousands of pieces of printed pieces, sketches, comps and, you know, finished art, actual artwork. And at some point, we're going to have a show about that, too, because I want to start an online gallery where people okay. can go in. Fans can go in and buy something that their are other fans that they're competing with for bragging rights won't have the ability to have I'm gonna sell sketches I'm gonna sell comps I'm gonna right now I've just been selling original artwork right. which is fine but I've got all these thousands of pieces and what the hell am I going to do with them you know right. why not get out there and share it with the fans and right so our it,
0: listeners can go on to your platform and they can yeah. buy the original artwork yeah. from some of these yeah, things just in the like past. I'm gonna
1: do for you you know absolutely amazing past, I'm, I'm putting together a, 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 some selections for you but yeah there's if you've got anywhere between 250 dollars to hundred fifty thousand dollars I've got something for you wow. and I've got something for you that nobody else will have it's one of a kind I mean when when uh, there's there's a few Alice Cooper fans that I've been friends with that have bought prints for me and stuff and tapestries and they all have the same stuff but and they've dedicated rooms to all this puppets and posters and you know all this stuff that everybody else has They don't really have anything that everybody else couldn't get, but here's a chance for you to buy something that's original. And, you know, even if it's a printed piece, I mean, when we did the muscle of love album for Alice, and I don't mean to drift away from this, but it all will make sense in the end. We did the muscle of love album for Alice. We did a store dangler that was a mobile two-sided and it was a picture of him like Popeye with the big arms and stuff. And, you know, it was a two-sided mobile. I was on eBay a week or so ago. Somebody paid $350 for one. And it was kind of beat up. I've got three. They're brand new that wow. never went to the record stores. Wow! So and I've got stuff like that all over the place, mobiles, sketches, comps. So that's going to become something, you know, down the road. But right now, this piece is interesting because, you know, I have a pretty good memory. I have Um, the ability to have any little piece of something, and I can tell you the story behind it just because I lived it. So I remember uh, taking this painting and putting it away, okay? And then um, for 53 years go by, okay, and and I had thought about it from time to time. When we moved, I had a fourplex in L.A., so I had four garages, beds, closets to, to put stuff in. So I'd just get something back and I'd put it away. And I remember taking this piece and putting it away. And I had all these shelves built into garages. I had There were no cars in the garages. I kept all four of them for all this artwork and stuff. So two and a half years ago, when we moved everything from Los Angeles to the desert, I was trying to sort of take a list of everything that we were moving. For the first time, I'm able to catalog things, okay, and I and – I, would I? We did it. It took us a few months to put all this stuff together to take it and ship it here. And then I could, and we rented a, a 40 by 80 foot space and put everything in it okay, personal stuff and all this stuff in and, and boxes and folders. And, and so I spent eight months going through and really cataloging every piece. So I've got over 3,000 things along with 3,000 photographs all cataloged. So I can crazy. Go to, if you tell me I need this, I can go, I know right where it is. I have a I have a list all in the computer and everything because I'd fill it out over at the storage space and come back here while we were building a storage space to put it in. And, uh, and I would catalog it into the computer. So when we moved everything from LA to here and I was there trying to do a rough cataloging, I don't remember seeing that piece. And I, I actually found some pieces that I had forgot all about. I mean, that's how crazy it was and how many things there were. And I don't remember seeing that piece. But when you're moving so many things and trying to catalog it all at once, it, it, it becomes kind of a blur. So I thought about it and then didn't think about it. We get back here to the desert. So I've got eight months now and I'm cataloging everything. And I don't see it. From time to time, it would come to my mind, especially when I was putting these other pieces together, the line art, the mechanical, the sketches, I have all that. But... I didn't remember seeing that painting. And then I thought, well, okay, you know, like other pieces, they just sort of disappear. You know, (laughs) I've had a few of those. And then I lost some pieces in a flood in my parents' basement. But, you know, I don't remember seeing that piece. And so um, I catalog everything there and bring it all here to the storage space that we had built and I'm putting everything away and checking and cataloging, making sure that everything goes where I've got everything lettered and numbered, all the shelves and areas that things are. There's an overhead thing with a bunch of stuff. And so, but I, and I didn't remember seeing it then, but I kind of forgot all about it. Okay. And then, and so 53 years has gone by. Okay. And I thought about it from time to time, but never really dwelled on it. So about a month or so ago, maybe a month and a half ago, I was looking for some fifth dimension stuff that I had done and some monkey stuff that I had done cuz I was going to talk about them. And there was a crate, uh not wasn't a crate it was a box. It was a box it was about I don't know 12 about 11 or 12 inches wide, it was 30 by 40. It was a plywood. It was a plywood box that a guy years ago had bought some prints from me. He was going to resell them. And so he bought a bunch of prints and I sent him to him, and he spent about six months selling stuff, and then decided he didn't want to do that anymore. He was going to get into something else, so he gave me all the prints that were left back. He had sold most of them, but he gave them back to me. He sent them to me in this wood, this wooden box. So I knew that that box had these prints in it. So I never bothered really because it's got screws all the way. It was a real pain in the ass to try and you know take apart and see what's in it. I just assumed that if there were prints, it was either empty or there were prints in. It. So. Uh, I'm looking for these pieces and I, I, I'm looking around and I find a couple of things I'm looking for. And I'm, I'm looking at this box and I go, you know, I got I, I wonder if, you know, if there's prints in there, I'm going to take them down and I'm going to sell them. OK. And so I took it down and I opened up the crate of the box and there's this painting sitting inside. So for 53 years, it had been in my garage and then when I was putting everything together in L.A. to move it here, I had a couple people helping me. And I think one of them had taken the painting and put it inside the box to, to protect it because it was just a canvas you know, stretched over stretcher bars. So he put it in there and I didn't know we were just packing everything up to go. And and so I opened it up and there it is. And it's like, oh, my God. That's really amazing. I, I, I've i missed it for so long. And it's signed and, and lettered. You know, I mean, huh. the date, 1974. It's April a beautiful piece. 19... It is. Beast. It really is. I mean, it's pretty and it's big. You know, unlike the stone stone, which is small, uh, it's big. And, and I think it's like 26 by 34 or something. It's good size. And so, you know, finding it after all this time really brought back a lot of memories about what had happened with this piece and how it had Come to be, and I wanted to talk about it and let people know that it's. And what I'm hoping is that at some point somebody will want to buy all this stone stuff. And I have it goes all the way back to what you saw on the first slide that I had, all the different pieces of merchandise, the um, you know the uh, other pieces that were created for it, the mechanicals, the sketches, and then all the Dolls Alive stuff that led up to it. So there's a whole story from beginning to today that's in this collection, and it's a collection of its own. It, it, it can be part of something else, like I have it as part of my collection with all these pieces, or it could be a collection that stands alone. And uh, I found that pretty interesting, and and it's something that nobody even really knew existed. You know, and I knew it existed somewhere, but then I thought I lost it. So I kind of forgot about
0: it. Right. So and are you going to sell this whole thing as a lot or are you going to sell them as individual pieces?
1: No, I think I'm going to sell it all as a lot. Yeah. There's got to be a lot of stone stands out there. And it's, you know, it's a pretty unique thing. And they're a pretty monumental band. Yeah, it sure is. Talk about, talk about iconic, you know, I mean, there, there it is. And especially when you put it together together with all the Dolls Alive stuff, because there's a poster, there's a record, there's an album, Octagon album cover. There's all the pieces that the teasers and stuff to go with that, that leads right into this story. What I'm going to do is write a complete, this will be part of it. um, And I'm going to write a complete story from beginning to end, just like we're talking about today at some point. I mean, for me, it was more important to get it out there and let people, I have a lot of uh, Rolling Stones fans that, you know, follow me on Facebook and Twitter and stuff and, I thought it would be pretty interesting to put it out there and let people know it's there. It, it, it actually exists, mm-hmm. so you know that's kind of what what I wanted to do with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I may end up. You know, I'm working on a couple of possible uh, museum shows. Uh, the very few album cover art museum shows because there's very little album cover art. Painting is truly a one of a kind. Yes. It is. Yeah. All, all of them are. There's only one line art. There's only one yeah. sketches. There's only one, you know, mechanical along with only. I mean, I, I met a guy years ago that wanted to buy my Dolls Alive stuff because he was a collector of corporate musicals. You know, you talk about I mean, there's somebody out there that collects everything. OK, no yeah. matter what. And so, so this guy collected, believe it or not, industrial musicals. Because I guess, you know, a lot of corporate people, when they have trade shows and stuff or sales meetings, they'll do a musical thing or an entertainment thing that goes along with it. And that's what Dolls Alive was. Dolls Alive was singers and dancers. It was like uh, the, uh, ro- the Rockettes in New York. I fashioned the whole idea around the Rockettes with singers and dancers and songs. And We hired Skip Redwine, who was a songwriter, to write 10 songs about paper. And about International Paper Company, which is really crazy. We pressed a record, and I did that album, so it becomes a complete collection with the backstory and everything, all sort of written out, and typed out. Yeah,
0: excellent, yeah. excellent. And I know that you have some other things in the works going on in the background, some filming and so forth. Right. Are you going to wait till after the end of that until you start to, you know, sell well, some of I, these items? Or
1: my plan is a timeline. We've got a rough timeline, and it's by the beginning of next year i want to start this online gallery you know uh and you know i think there's a couple of people that have bought from me pieces original pieces and they don't like going to auction houses because the auction house collects from both the seller and the buyer and uh, one of the guys that buys from me bought a piece it hammered down at fifty thousand. he ended up paying two five because the you know, and they all do it. autos, Autos, they all do it, and they take it from the buyer and the seller. Mm-hmm. So you know, he didn't really like doing that. But sometimes those companies, those auction houses, get the you know get the best stuff because they have the connection of the people that are buying. You know, that's the difference. A, a while ago, I tried to I had a guy from uh, Bottoms come out from New York and looked at my collection. You know, they offered me a ridiculous price for 32 pieces. And I, there's just no way I could sell three pieces and make that. But, you know, they're kind of PE and they want to make money. And, you know, I mean, if I wanted, if I was desperate, I would go ahead and do it and take whatever they would give me. But I'm not desperate. You know, I'd rather take my time and do this methodically. And maybe somebody will come along and buy the whole thing. I mean, I have an incredible collection and it's a great starter collection. One of the guys that I'm in touch with has 160 pieces of album cover art. Another guy has uh, almost 70. I have 350. So if somebody wanted to start, and another thing was an album cover art museum. There is none. There isn't an album cover art museum on the face of the earth. But, you know, I even thought about doing that. I talked to my attorney and, and you know, that's a, that's a good option, you know, to start a museum. And then you have all the benefits of having a museum and, and getting the word out there and stuff. But, you know, at 78, that's not really what I want to do. That yes. takes time. You know, I'm it's looking for work. somebody else to do it, you know, and maybe one of these people that have these collections. I mean, there's a guy, I guess a year or two ago that paid $326,000 for the first Led Zeppelin art on the that cover of the Zeppelin hitting the tower. Yeah. And it's, wow. it's not even really a piece of art. I mean, it's a duotone that they went in and worked on you know it's a photograph that's been converted into a duotone that you know they've done add some color and stuff too but they paid three hundred twenty-six thousand dollars for it now i get it it's led zeppelin you know but there are other things just as big and nowhere near that cost right you know. so yeah. but so there, there are people out there that want it you know and and i think as time goes by it'll be even that that'll grow even more the other the other ace in the hole that I have, so to speak, with the idea of starting this museum, or this online gallery, even better, um, is the fact that I've got seventy three of Drew answer. And we had talked about him in the past. All the Raiders lost our most collected illustrator in the world, right? Because of all his movie posts. I have seventy two of his original. So you know, and because the the girl that the head of the music stuff, at Heritage House, came to my house and looked at the stuff and we were talking about you know she was really anxious for me to put all this stuff together and sell it all through their auction house and you know the biggest point that she had was you know your stuff that you have has a time code on it and i said what do you mean she said well you know years ago i would handle a lot of the stuff from the the 40s big band stuff movie star stuff and that's not so much in demand anymore you know, it's new generations. People don't, you know, younger people don't really only a small fraction. The market shrinks as you get older and people die off. And, you know, then it becomes something they may discover, but they're not going to sign up for, you know, it's just knowledge that they have. So she said, you have a time code. And I said, you know, I I agree to that. I, I do, but not on everything because I have all these other pieces that more time goes by, the more they're going to be worth, like Drew's pieces, Bill Garland. The movie posters that Drew didn't do, Bill Garland did. And we all worked together at Pacific Ioneer. I mean, it was really kind of an amazing thing how these guys went on to really control the movie poster business, and in Drew's case, change it. Because it changed from photography to illustration. It's an interesting story, and these pieces, I think, have that kind of provenance. Um, And I'm working on a couple of museum shows. We'll see what happens there. Um, They're hard to get, you know, I mean, you have to be invited. Anybody Mm -hmm. could have a gallery show, you know, but Mm -hmm. a museum show, that's something. And I'm lucky I have two under my belt. You know, the the piece behind me, the big piece doesn't have that provenance, but the other four, the other three pieces and all the Dolls Alive stuff do. They have those museum shows that they were in. It would be nice to have the same thing happen for this piece. You know, so that's kind of where I'm going with it. You know, I mean, there's a lot of different things that I'm talking about doing, but you know, I think the online gallery is a cool thing because it really gives fans an opportunity to have, you know, bragging rights about having something that other fans don't have. I think that's important. So,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Some of these rock and roll collectors are crazy. You know, they'll do anything yeah. to get, they get collect guitar
1: picks, they collect tickets for the concert. Yeah. I met a guy that had like 3,000 tickets. I'm like, OK, <laughs> you know, I mean, we're is that's never going to be in a museum show or maybe I should never say never. But, you know, I think that real collectors, people that want to invest because it is an investment. You know, if they paid one hundred thousand dollars for it today in 10, 20, 30 years, it's going to be worth double, triple that, especially if it's as true. Right. You know, I mean, these guys go on. I remember when I remember in 1968 or nine. Andy Warhol did some lithographs, silkscreens of a soup can, and he was selling those for $1,000. And I remember because I was in art school, there was this big, oh man, poo poo, you know, that's the people that buy that for $1,000, just stupid. Now that poster is worth a million dollars, you know, so it took 50 something years, but that's okay. You know, I, I wish I had 50 more years, I wouldn't bother selling any of it. Right?
0: right. Sounds so, like a good yeah. investment to me.
1: Yeah, it is. It is a good investment if you're a music fan. And, and again, like we talked about, people collect stuff. There There's so much stuff that people collect. And it isn't always artwork. It's stuff. I had a friend in college that had a robot collection, little toy robots. Yeah, I don't know. He had probably 100, 200 of them. He sold it for, like, $80,000. You know, and this is, like, 30 years later. But, you know, I mean, it was stuff that he never really – you know, he just collected it because he liked it. And then somebody – said, hey, you know, you ought to sell those things, because a lot of them are collector's pieces.
2: Yeah, so it John, John and I have a a good friend. He's actually my cousin, but we used to go over to his house, and he had an apartment uh, in Medford at the time, and we always looked up to him. He was an older cousin who was in was the cool. sports world. Yeah. And, and so he, he ran the LA Forum for a time, and then he he's at Fenway Park over the years, and um, we'd go over to his house, and he'd open a closet, and Bats and hockey sticks and baseball. Fibber McGee's flowers. closet. Fibber yeah. McGee's closet. Yeah. And, and so yeah, under the bed he had stuff under there, stacks of pitches and, and everything that he had collected. And Henry like, oh, oh, oh uh, yeah, that that was signed by Roger Clemens. You want it? And you know, yeah. give us a bat, give us a stick signed by someone. Uh, um, but now he has a restaurant, and all over his restaurant is finally the collection of all his pitches that he and, and those are the things that he was hiding under his bed and in the closet. And yeah. to see those on display now, it's like, wow, look, Those those some of those pieces are priceless.
1: Sure, they are. Yeah, like people that collect baseball cards, and, yeah, yeah. You know, army cards, and airplane cards. Burton Cummings is a huge collector. You know, oh, really? all that stuff. Yeah, from the Guess Who, lead singer. Yeah. yeah, he's a huge collector of comic books. He's got a comic book collection that's worth $5 million. Wow. He's got, you know, Superman from the first one to the newest one. I mean, he's got these and they're all in plastic bags. You know, he's a real... You know, coveter, he likes, you know, that's what collectors do. They covet and brag, you know, and yeah, I mean, those kinds of things, they're out there, you know. And what I have, you know, again, I I don't have any children, you know, so there's really nobody to, to leave it to. And why not just enjoy it now while I can, you know, and, it, and it's not doing anything but collecting dust in my, you
2: know. And make my, sure other people get to enjoy it as well. Yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. It's I've had it for 50 years plus, so it's time for somebody else to enjoy it.
2: You know, so, and, and
1: I and I thought, you know, for the longest time, I tried to keep everything together. I tried to keep the collection together. And then it just sort of dawned on me, you know, I mean, it, it's, I had people that were pursuing me and, and wanting to buy stuff. And, you know, I was saying no. And then finally, I just said, you know, heck with it. Let's just do it. Right. You know,
0: so. Well, it, it's time. And, yeah. uh, you know, like Mark yeah. said, it, people might as well enjoy it and it will be out there forever. And, yeah. you know, you you telling the story, you're bringing it to the world, you're, you know, in the middle of a book with Ivor, uh, Ivor mm-hmm. Levine, yeah. uh, you're writing a book on the history of you, In some yeah. other things in the works, a, a possible documentary, a yeah. documentary, yeah. so this is, you know, really exciting, some big stuff happening.
1: Yeah, well, and, and we're going to do stuff in the future, I mean, it, you and, you and uh, Mark have been really very kind to me. Like Joyce, you know, I mean, giving me the opportunity to have a platform to talk about this stuff.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. It, it's truly our honor to have you on here because, like I oh, always my say, honor here,
1: it's you're my a, honor you're here. a
0: history maker, and uh, you know, uh, for be for for us to be entrusted by you to help tell your story is really big for Mark and I, and we appreciate you and appreciate you, your friendship.
1: Uh, I, I appreciate that, you know, I truly do. I mean, it's something that is really relevant you know like music i mean music will always be around you know and people will constantly be new generations will be rediscovering it and, you know it's just a, a matter of this is the artwork that goes with the music you know and now the backstory that goes with that so i have the complete full circle you know of, of the piece the backstory to it and coming from the horse's mouth so to speak
0: absolutely you
1: know, or the yeah. horse's
0: ass like you said before i was going
1: to say it could be the other end of the horse too but i you know and more than more times than not it is believe me i mean I, my wife will tell you that oh. you know so and i and that's the other thing i've been very very blessed to have somebody that's supportive yeah. you know i mean if she's just she's and she was part of it i mean she was our secretary of pacific iron and our accountant for like 14 years mm-hmm. you know while the company was in in business and you know, so she's been an important part of it as well. And she, you know, she had lived through it just like I did, you know, and, and that's why it's so easy for me to remember all these things because we lived it, you know, and it's, it's, it's something that, especially when it's something that's so monumental, you know, I mean, working with Alice Cooper, working with Black Sabbath, you know, working with the Rolling Stones, working with all these different things. I mean, it wasn't like I was working in an insurance company selling policies or something, you know, this is something that, went down in history. And again, like I said, at the beginning of this, never really sat and thought about that. Never really sat and said, Hey, I did this Rolling Stones thing. And, you know, someday 50 years from now, when they're still around, believe it or not, you know, and still probably the number one rock and roll band in the world ever, you know, I've got this piece and yeah, other people, John Pache and other people have done stuff, but mine was the first one. And even if it, if people would debate that I've got to be one of two, So whether I'm the chicken or the egg, it doesn't really matter to me. It really doesn't. It isn't about ego with me. It's about accomplishment, you know, and feeling good about leaving a mark. I want to be able to say Ernie was here. And, you know, and I'm getting that. I mean, I I talked to a friend of mine in Memphis who brought me to the Smithsonian Museum there. And he was telling me, he said, there's somebody in my office. He's an invest. He has an investment company, uh, Radiant Partners. Very, very big time Big rich people and, and corporations and all their 401ks and stuff. And he and I was talking to him one day, and he said, You know, I got somebody in my office that would love to talk to you. And so I talked to this woman who in, in Africa, she was what she was teaching school there, and she was teaching art, and she was studying me and her students on the internet. Wow. And she was like, I can't believe I'm talking to you and I've talked about you and my students have studied you. And, and it's like, God damn, man. I mean, that's pretty amazing. That's That's pretty amazing. Yeah. you know, I mean, it's like you guys with your show. I mean, there are going to be people that see this and and Ernie's corner too, that I would have never been able to touch, you know, without your help, without Joyce's help, without people on Facebook. I've got a lot of really nice friends on Facebook that really care, you know, and that that's important. People that I don't even know, that I touched their lives. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, you guys have a similar kind of thing because you are concerned with people and public servants kind of thing. And both of you come from that kind of background where it's about caring for people, right. you know? And so, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I'm sure you can feel what I'm saying. Absolutely. Um, there's a pride that comes with that. And knowing that, wow, I, somebody I didn't even know I helped, I was able to help. Yep. And that that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, well, this this has been a great episode and it's been, it's just shown how humble you are. You went through talking about a few things and you've complimented not only your wife who you credit this whole thing to for sticking with you through thick and thin and crediting each and every individual person that you worked alongside in in the back in the day.
1: Well, it's important that people know it wasn't just me. And like you said, Bonnie is probably the number one most important because in the beginning, and we talked about it in one of our episodes together when I was in New York and was really down and couldn't even catch a cold and calling her and telling her I'm coming back to Oakland and, you know, and, and we'll be comfortable there. And I was freelancing. I could get a job there. And You know, New York was too much. I overestimated what I could do. And she believed in me more than I believed in myself. Always. That's when she said, if you come back, I'm going to be gone. We have been together six years. I mean, there's no way that could happen. Had she let me come back, we wouldn't be here today talking about any of this. Stuff. We wouldn't, I wouldn't even have any of this. None of this would have ever been done. Pacific Ioneer, the Stone's Tom, Jesus Christ Superstar. It's just amazing when you sit back and think about how it was all linked together, you know, just like my life. I mean, it is my life. I mean, it's something that I always have done. I never really had to have a job doing anything other than this. I'm really no good at anything other than this, you know, and I'm able to talk about it because I lived it and I felt it every day. And I had somebody tell me, when are you going to run out of backstories? You know, when I did this tongue, there was more going on in my life than just this one thing. And there's other stories and other stories about this stuff and all the other stuff that I haven't told because it was a day-to-day experience every day for a month or every day for 2 weeks or every day for 6 months. When we did the box set for Alice Cooper Old School, that took 3 months to do. So it was every day for 3 months cuz I work every day. I work 7 days a week and you know, it gives me a chance to still stay sharp and really have time. One of the things that I never had enough of was time. You know, we were always under a deadline, always under, you know, well here it is and we got to have it in 2 days. You know what do you do i mean you gotta you know i've had plenty of you know of instances where they'll come to me and say okay here's some photographs here's the name of the album here's you know the group go ahead and do something and it's like okay you know i mean and oh by the way we got to have it in a couple of days you know so it's like my god and i was just so blessed to have guys like drew you know and bill and carl and those guys they could do stuff amazingly fast i mean that That painting that Drew did for Welcome My Nightmare of Alice Cooper, I think he did it in like three or four days. And it's an oil painting. It's an oil painting. I mean, these guys were just amazing. And and, and the other cool thing about it was we were all coming up at the same time. They were learning how to do their art better. I was learning how to become a creative director. You know, I mean, more than anything, more than my designs and my lettering and anything else, I learned how to give direction. I learned how to understand the project, understand the goal, and come up with a solution. So I'm a solution provider. You know, that's what I do. And I have plenty of solutions. And now I have so many solutions that I just look for problems. You know, rather than the other way around waiting for the problem to come to me. You know, yeah. I mean it's yeah. kind of crazy, but that's kind of how it works, you know, these days. I mean, there's only so many problems and there's so many versions of a solution yeah. that can be provided. I mean, I do that all the time. Well, I remember when he did this and he did it, I mean, maybe if I did this and take that as an inspiration. And that's the first step getting toward the third step, which is the final piece. I mean, you know, it's kind of crazy how it comes together like that. And and the other thing is how quickly it comes together. After 53 years of doing this, um, and what I had just said about problems and solutions, if I spend more than an hour doing something, coming up with an idea or a sketch or something, it amazes me because that's all it takes. And and there was a time when it would take days, you know, and and tons of sketches. I mean, when I'd make a presentation to a customer, even on my own, and even with the the guys, we would have a half a dozen solutions. We'd have a half a dozen sketches. Okay, now I I give them one sketch. That's it. And and it's not from an ego standpoint. It's just the best thing that could be done. Right.
0: Well, you, you know? can't you can't put you know money on. Your experience—you have fifty-something years' experience, and it just comes natural from learning and making mistakes.
1: Yeah, yeah, and not making that same mistake again and again. I'm Italian; I make mistakes over and over again, (laughs) but not so many these days. I used to make a lot. I used to make them over and over, especially with picking partners. You know, for companies. uh After Pacific Ironer, I had a couple other companies, and you know, and and I always blamed them, you know, the other partner for why it didn't work out, Uh, but it was really me you know, it was really my looking for that same person. So there would be no surprise. Yeah. You know, it was like being an abused person and you get rid of the abuser and then you get all cleaned up and looking good, go out and find another abuser, just like the one you had. Yeah. It's just, you know, because there's no, there's no surprise. I know what to expect down the road, even though I wouldn't admit it to myself. Right. You know, and it took me a long time to figure that out. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple for most people, but for me, it took a lot of years. It took, up until about 12 years ago.
0: Well, we're proud of you, Ernie, that you finally got there.
1: <laughs> I'm proud of your fact that your guys are proud of me. I really Ernie, respect I, you very much. I wanted you to know.
2: ask you, Ernie, um, what was the first album you ever saw in a record store when you were out buying an album and you you came across one of your your products? What what was it, if you remember, and uh, what was that feeling like? Uh, I can remember seeing the first single
1: I ever bought when I was in junior high school was Bebop Baby, Ricky Nelson. <laughs> and in those days, there was no record store. It was uh, equipment, uh, sound radios and stuff. And they had a rack, the carousel rack that sold singles. And that's how it was. And the first album that I saw in a record store, that's a, that, I've never been asked that question. I just have to think about it for a second. It would have to be Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. It would have to be Jesus Christ Superstar because before that, I hadn't really done a commercial album. The Dolls Alive piece, there were only 500 pieces, and they went to the salespeople that attended the sales meeting. It was a national sales meeting. And so we did 500 of them. Jesus Christ Superstar was the first one. And I remember, this is so funny. How did I feel? I felt like I was 10 feet tall. Okay, <laughs> And I had cojones that were even bigger. I had a wheelbarrow that I put my cojones in and drove around. <laughs> but I remember being on the F-train. Going back, I was living in Brooklyn, working in Manhattan, uh, and I remember taking the F train back to Brooklyn, and I was sitting down, and there was these young kids. They were probably, you know, late teens, and they were. I was in my early twenties, so <laughs> we weren't that far apart. But they, there was a half a dozen of them, and they were talking about the Jesus Christ Superstar album, and one of them had it, and I'm sitting there, and They're talking about each one of them talking about this amazing album and how it's a different look at, you know, Jesus and how that whole thing happened. And it was more, you know, disruptive than what the Catholic church had been teaching and and all these things because it was, there was still hippies around then, you know, this is like (laughs) 1971. No, this is 1970. And I remember I was so, so engulfed in what they were saying is I said, Hey, I did that album cover and they just looked at me like, who are you? And that was the last time I ever did that. That's how I ever did that. Cause I, I, you know, I never tried to explain to them or justify. I just said, I did that. And it was like, so, you know, <laughs> and, and so that was the, that was the feeling. And after that, I never really, I mean, we would spend a lot of time in record stores cause there was no internet. If you wanted to do us, you know, uh, If you wanted to do uh, some research on a a group that you were going to do work for or that you got a project from, uh, the only, there was no library, there was no internet, there was Cashbox, Record World, and Billboard, but, you know, to find a specific thing, you weren't always able to do that. So um, I would go to the record store. There were, you know, record stores everywhere and just look at, you know, then they would have the bins with all the albums that that group had had or that individual had had so I was able to sit there and look at it, and, you know. I uh, I remember doing that a lot because that was really the only place that you could go to get any kind of background. So you know, it's it's interesting how times have changed. Now you know, you know, you order everything online. You never have to leave your house, and uh, you know, there isn't anything that you can't Google that you, that isn't doesn't isn't out there. Right. So yeah, I mean that. I hope that answers your question. It did, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well,
0: if they Google "Godfather of Album Covers," your face is going <laughs> to pop up. Well, um, I don't know about
1: that. There's, uh, there's a lot of people that have done really great covers, not you know, much nicer than the ones that I've done. And yeah. you know, but I, I, I like to pride myself in knowing that a lot of these guys that have come up a little bit after me, and after me, and then maybe even to this day, um, that I influenced. There's a kid named Tommy Steele. Great name. I always loved that name. It was like a comic book name. And I liked his work. You know, he was an art director in a record company. And I always liked his work. I was first attracted to it by his name, Tommy Steele. What a great name. And I was a big fan of Bob Steele, the cowboy star, okay? And, uh, and so that name always stuck with me. And my first museum show in Glendale at Forest Lawn, uh, I had about 30 pieces there. And on a Saturday, they put on a exhibition of myself and the other design. There were I was there were only two or three designers, the rest were illustrators. Uh, they put together a forum where we would talk. The people could ask us questions and stuff. There was an audience. They had this big, big facility where they had probably a hundred people, and it was a Saturday afternoon. And we it was a few hours, and when we were each talking, they had a huge screen behind us that would put up the images that we had done you know, behind us, and I remember talking, and then after that, they had a um, a meet-and-greet, so to speak, where they had us sitting at a table, and then people that were in the, in the uh, you know, during the, the, the talk that we were giving could come up and have us sign stuff and talk to us, and this kid comes up, and he goes, uh, you know, my name is Tommy Steele, and I just wanted to tell you that what a huge influence you were on me getting into designing album covers. And he had done some pretty cool covers. I mean, it wasn't just his name. He was a smart guy. And I didn't know what he looked like. I didn't. I just knew the name. And I was kind of like taken back when here's this guy that I never knew who's telling me how I touched his life and how I helped him make a decision as to what he wanted to do with his life. And That's I've amazing. had several of those happen. I've had several of them. It's, amazing. A, it's it's really I mean it really touches you man it's more than just doing a piece of art it's it's touching somebody else yeah. you know and having them and I, I know both of you come from a career of doing that where you help other people and they you put yourself second sometimes to that yeah. and it pays off it really does it, it really and even though I didn't realize I was doing it I didn't know I was doing it I didn't know what I was doing was going to become iconic. Who the hell would thought about that 50 years later?
0: Right. You know. And that I makes mean, it more days, special.
1: Yeah, in those days if you lived past 30, first of all you didn't trust anybody over 30 and then if you lived past that you were an old guy. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I never really thought about it long term and now I, here I am in the long term of it at 78 going wow. That's amazing. I'm 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 just I'm in awe of the fact that I'm still here. I'm healthy, knock on wood. And I can still remember all this stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can pull any... I, I had a, a guy over here a year or so ago. And he was talking about all this stuff. And he said, how do you remember? I said, pull anything out. Pull, pull. Go over there and pull a piece out. So he went over there, he pulled out this piece. And I told him about a half-hour dissertation on what happened <laughs> in that. And he was just in awe of it. Yeah. You know, but it's easy when you have... You know, stakes in the ground like images that I can look back and remember. Remember those. I'm not trying to come cold turkey with something. I mean, I I lived it because you live it, you you know everything about it, you know. And thank God I'm still able to put two things together to remember.
0: Well, we sure appreciate it for sure, Ernie. And uh, I appreciate we 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 can't wait to uh, you know chat with you again and let our fans and your fans and listeners and everyone uh, find out. You know all the stories behind all of this iconic art, oh, there's and, and, plenty of them. and you. We can put a face to the actual yeah.
1: art. Yeah, that's the other thing. I've had, uh, you know, both those people that came from the auction houses sort of said the same thing. You know, we get artwork and we get stuff, and it, usually it's in really bad condition. Both of them were shocked at what great condition the stuff because it was always put away, never out anywhere. Right. You know, when it was created, it was out, and then it was put away, and never really saw the light of day for. 50 years later right you know so it's in really good condition and both those people said you know you know i can't believe the condition it's in and what makes it even more valuable is the fact that you're around to talk about it and right. you can remember it because a lot of times they get stuff and they don't know the story behind it they just know that you know this guy had a piece of art and he wants to sell it at an auction doesn't know anything about it just what's it worth you know it's like that traveling road show where they come you go in there you take your stuff and they tell you what it's worth, antique road show, or whatever it's called. You know, I, I remember all of it. I I was there. I lived it all, and it makes it for for them the auction houses. And I and I think for you know everybody, it makes it much better when you can
0: hear the story behind it. Yep. You want to know the story, right and from I, the horse's I, ass. Yeah, exactly. Right, so, from, right yeah, from the horse's. Yeah, ass. we we can't wait to chat with you again and and yeah. continue this conversation. If I'm going to close this out and. uh, you know, Mark and I, on behalf of musicians and beyond, we're sitting here talking with Ernie Sheffalu. He is an iconic graphic designer and has done a lot over the years. And you know, we really have gained a friend and like Mark says, we want to thank you for being our friend.
1: No, uh, thank you for letting me do yeah, always. I, I really appreciate it. You guys are awesome.
0: All right. You're half as awesome as you, and we want to thank you.
1: <laughs>